What's going on, everyone? Got a great episode for you today, but before we get into it, wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Circle and Curve. Circle is the issuer of USDC, the most trusted blue chip stablecoin in all of crypto. Curve is a very cool one-of-a-kind digital wallet that kind of aggregates all of your different credit cards and allows you to gain transparency over where and how you're spending and maximize the rewards that you're earning on those credit cards. So uh, you're gonna be hearing all about them later in the episode, but for now, on with the show. We're not in a cyclical environment for those assets right now, where we just happen to have a bit of weakness, you know, versus a previous period of a bit of strength. We're in a totally different monetary policy environment. Like we went from the easiest monetary conditions that have existed in the history of the modern world to a, to a time when the era of cheap money, it's over. We've got a lot of material to cover, so I just want to get into it. But before we do, maybe you could give a brief synopsis of your kind of career, uh, especially maybe touching on some of your time at, at Bridgewater and that how that kind of led into what you're doing at Unlimited, because that's going to kind of set the foundation for what we talk about for the rest of the show. Yeah, for, for sure. So my, my career is really 20 years as a systematic investor. I was at Bridgewater Associates for, uh, for almost 15 years where uh, I was uh, part of uh, the investment committee, created many of the uh, strategies, uh, created strategies across all the wide range of asset classes, many of which were in uh, the flagship Pure Alpha Fund, and then also uh, ran Ray Dalio's personal investment research team for more than a decade as well, and uh, you know helped work on all of the various publications that uh, possibly some of your, your listeners have uh, read before. Um, and then after that, I left uh, and actually ran, went over to the private side of the 2 and 20 space, ran a $125 million venture book, which systematically identified high potential early stage consumer opportunities. You can think about systemization, but in the private side of the 2 and 20 space uh, using big data, um, which is very relevant in the consumer space. Um, but increasingly in my sort of later years at Bridgewater, as well as my time over on the private side of the 2 and 20 space, it increasingly became obvious to me that two and 20 asset managers, uh, it, it's really good for the manager and not so good for the investor. And that's because while the managers are pretty good at generating high quality returns, they're also pretty good at charging pretty high fees, which leave investors not much better off than what they would be otherwise. And so that got me to thinking starting um, a little while ago about whether there's a way to sort of bring the concepts of low cost diversified indexing, which obviously has radically changed the world of stock and bond investing, whether there was a way to bring those ideas into the world of two and 20. Now the, the solution to that problem has to be a little different than traditional two and 20 or than traditional indexing, because you can't just go out and buy the securities because you can't invest in the hedge funds or the private equity firms because Many of them won't take your money, or even if they did, they charge you two and 20, you'd have to pay yourself something and that would make it, you know, not that great for the investor. And so instead, uh, what we decided to do was, was create technology that allows us to sort of look over the shoulder of the two and 20 asset managers, take that understanding of what they're doing and translate that into uh, positions in liquid securities, which we can package in the investor friendly form of an ETF. Um, and so that's the basic idea of Unlimited and what I'm working on now, which is, you know, diversified, low cost index products, index ETFs, uh, you know, that are, are essentially giving investors, all investors access to two and 20 style returns uh, with something like a quarter of the fees and, and half the tax burden of 
traditional LP positions. And uh, our first product is the uh, HFND ETF, uh, which has uh, been out there for a couple of months now and available on all the main platforms. And over time, we'll build out a suite of different products, uh, tracking that two and 20 uh, index uh, outcomes, including venture capital, private equity, and, and others. Excellent. Uh, well, I appreciate that that background, Bob, because you, the you know I think what I want to touch on in this conversation with you is sort of your your thoughts on the macro, right? Which I know, uh, especially as being you know an individual researcher on Ray Dalio's team, he has put out a lot of thoughts uh, on macro over the coming years which has shaped my opinion about a whole bunch of different things as well. So I'd love to kind of touch on that with you. I'd also love to get your thoughts on privates as well and the valuation of private assets, because there's been an enormous amount of attention that's been paid to public markets and what has the S&P and what the NASDAQ been doing. But we haven't really touched on the entire wide world of private assets, which we know pensions and all form of institutional investors have been piling into over the course of the last couple of years. For sure. Sounds great. But before we get into all of that, every once in a while, I came across this, uh, every once in a while, you come across an analogy, which is just super, super helpful for you to understand things if you have the brain of a five-year-old, which, which is what I have. Uh, and I heard you describe this this paper that you read on the economics of a POW camp. So could you kind of describe what that paper said and what like what you sort of took away from it uh, from, the, from the perspective of investing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, I, I, I like to often say that um, this this sort of classic, economics piece called the, the the economics of a POW camp, mm -hmm. the economic organization of POW, POW camp um, is kind of contains in sort of 10 or 12 pages, basically everything you would need to know to understand how macroeconomic dynamics work. And, and the way it does that is um, it's a, it's a study. It's a, it's an observational study about a person who was in a POW camp who looked at how, um, what we sort of think of as macroeconomic dynamics emerged and market dynamics emerged in the POW camp over the course of, of uh, you know, the months and years that, that people were there. The key thing to, to recognize is basically the income of the camp was that everyone got uh, a set of rations from uh, the Red Cross and it included some things that you might like and some things that you might not like and different people had different preferences. Um, and that naturally created a dynamic where people started to trade with each other. You know, someone who wanted the classic is tea versus coffee, right? Some people wanted tea, some people wanted coffee, and they started to trade with each other. And then over time, what naturally occurred is that uh, that trading initially happened between two bespoke entities, but then over time became more centralized uh, in the form of a market. And people realized that uh, having a clearinghouse essentially of the goods and the goods prices was very valuable because then everyone felt like they got a fair a fair deal in terms of their their uh, the value of their goods, and then from there started to create some things that I thought were very you know very interesting, which is the question that became how do you actually quote between tea and coffee and concepts like money start to emerge. In that case, uh, cigarettes become the natural money supply, uh, become the, the desirable money supply in the system. Uh, and then you have very, what, are, what end up being very classic waves that occur, which are, you know, cigarettes basically come in with new care packages, prices of all goods go up in cigarette terms, cigarettes are then smoked down over the course of a period of time, you know, prices start to fall in cigarette terms. So you have these waves of inflation and deflation that occur 
as a function of the money supply, which I'm sure we can all appreciate these days. And then finally, one of the things that I think is so interesting about the whole dynamic is that even though cigarettes were, you know, the money supply and a fixed money supply, what ended up starting to get created was actually borrowing. Uh, and, and there's this series of different conversations about uh, bread today versus bread next week or bread tomorrow and thinking about what the value, the temporal value of goods are today versus in the future and created a, actually quite a, quite a robust lending economy that then became centralized in a central clearinghouse where the markets were centralized, the credit was centralized, the money supply was largely accepted as cigarettes uh, and you know, experienced those waves of inflation and deflation. And by the end of it, the economic organization became quite sophisticated, almost to the same degree as you might think of, of a macroeconomic dynamic, but just you know, amongst a small set of people uh, in an enclosed uh, area. It sort of speaks to the fact that many of the sort of macro, macroeconomic dynamics that we talk about, we think about on the day-to-day -day basis, there's something really sort of fundamental about this is the way that people organize themselves time after time, year after year, circumstance after circumstance. They often organize themselves in the same basic ways. And if you can understand the cause and effect drivers and how those, how those organizations work, you can really understand how markets and economies and other things work. So all that in 13 pages. You can, uh, you can check it out on, the, on my pinned tweet at, uh, on, my, uh, on my Twitter account. Absolutely incredible. You know, I, in all these discussions that it's very popular to talk about what is the ideal form of money, cigarettes almost never comes up. But there you go. There's a natural scarcity to it in a POW environment. There's some utility. You can actually smoke them. Absolutely, right. absolutely incredible. So help us, help us map what ended up happening organizationally in the POW camp onto the greater macroeconomic cycle. So, you know, I, I've also heard you say that what we are experiencing right now is actually almost a very boring, very textbook macro cycle that's playing out over a period of time. And it's not the sexy old QE and financial asset prices going up, but instead this is almost something that is leaping out at us right from our textbook. So for those of us who, who might not have taken Econ 101 or could use a brushing up, what does that look like? What is that typical macroeconomic cycle look like? Yeah, I mean, for years I taught an intro macro course. Perfect. And, and Perfect. Each time I would, I would have the students go study typical inflationary cycles of the 50s and 60s and 70s. And they'd all sort of look at me and they'd say, yeah, 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 but this is not how it really works. Like we, a whole different world today. There's QE and it goes up and down. And that, that's basically what determines everything. That's how the, the cycle works. And I'm like, no, no, I, I promise you there will be a day when we get a traditional uh, inflationary cycle, macroeconomic inflationary cycle, and you'll, <laughs> you'll be happy that you've studied how these things work. And so while the origins of the, of the, the let's call it the beginning of this inflationary cycle are a little different than say how it was in the 50s and 60s and 70s, this, many of the same basic concepts apply, which is that there was a great deal of stimulative activity here, both from fiscal and monetary stimulation that created an economic environment that started to brush up against capacity, you know, unemployment basically at secular lows. That then was, was, uh, was combined with 
a supply shock, a couple of different supply shocks, first the COVID supply shocks, and then second, the supply shocks, the commodity supply shocks related to the war, which then created a significant rise in input prices across the economy and goods prices across the economy, which then caused inflation to rise. Then in the context of a tight labor market, individuals started to look for higher wages, press for higher wages, both because economic conditions were tight and they saw their purchasing power decline, which created wage growth, which helped fund or continue the nominal growth that we're seeing today. And so this is this is very classic, which is that you sort of get tight labor markets. Often you get a supply shock in one form or another that creates a rise in prices that creates then a reinforcement of the nominal price rises as wages start to catch up with the nominal price rises. And we're sort of in this point where then the the, the central bank, the Fed, but also the BOE and the ECB to some extent, eventually, mm -hmm. uh, are then responding to that dynamic by raising interest rates in order to try and cool the economy. But we're just sort of right in the beginning of that stage, right? We, we like to say, I like to say we're sort of in the second or third inning of that, which is we have the inflationary cycle, we have the rising prices, we have the reasonably elevated level of output, we have the tightening in response, but that's really only been going for about, you know, uh, I mean, less than nine months, eight months, mm -hmm. right? The Fed was still doing QE in February and March, right? Right. Interest rates were still zero in February and March. And these sorts of things take time to play out because the, the rise in interest rates has to flow through to the rest of the economy in order for the economy to slow down. And so we're only sort of eight months into a typical inflationary, uh, you know, uh, inflationary rise and then tightening and then decline as a function of that. Those often take, you know, two or three years to fully play out. And so eight months into a two or three year cycle here. Mm. You know what comes to mind actually hearing you describe that is you, you often sort of hear these analysts describe, well, you know, we're eight or nine months into a tightening cycle. By the way, just hearing you say that, it is crazy to me. This this year has been 10 years. I, it's crazy to me that the Fed is still doing QE in, in February, March of this year. That's mind blowing. That's right. That's right. I mean, it, it, but I, I think it's so important to recognize that part of the reason why this cycle is going to go slow is because the easy money wasn't that long ago, right? Mm -hmm. Like all the household, every household basically refied into a 2% mortgage or close to it. Every business basically refinanced their, their debt obligations, pushed out maturities, locked in low rates for a long time. Like the easy, the, the experience of easy money is still with us today. Every time mm -hmm. someone pays a 2% yield on their mortgage, that's the easy money that is still there. And it has a long, you know, it, it lives for a long time. The easy yeah. money lives for a long time, particularly in this economy that we sort of restructured away from short end sensitivity, like meaningfully restructured in the U.S. context, restructured the economy away from short end sensitivity over the course of the last 15 years since the financial crisis. And so, yeah, it, you know, it sounds crazy that that you know, the easy money was just eight months ago. And that really, but it was, it was just eight months ago. Like that's how far in we are into this process, even though it feels like, you know, <laughs> 20, 22 has been a slog. I speak yeah. to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance. And as it turns out, 
they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust, I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner, helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exec team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. Yeah. Maybe we can, from your perspective, chart out what that process really looks like. Because we know from the Fed's recent minutes that one something that they're paying a lot of attention to is the labor market, right? As measured by unemployment. They're also looking at wage gains. And we've had a, an analyst on the show, Eric Bismatian, who's kind of charted out what he views the macroeconomic cycle as, which it's, it's sort of a circle, but if you had to pick a place to start at, it would be the tightening or the loosening of monetary policy, right? So when, you know, step one is there's a tightening in monetary policy. That means that short-term rates go up. That then leads to mortgages becoming more expensive. When mortgages become more expensive, the housing market in general contracts, and that has two effects. One, the housing market is such a big part of the economy that all of these industries that are involved in the housing market start to contract, but also there's a reverse wealth effect that takes place because People are like, oh my God, you know, 80% of my net worth is my is the value of my home. And now that's down 10 or 20% or whatever it is. When that starts to happen, companies begin to lay people off and earnings go down, or sorry, company earnings uh, start to contract. And then finally we get uh, layoffs at the very end of that cycle. I'd be curious, does that kind of match up with the, I didn't take economics one-on-one actually, so I'm learning all this on the well, you're probably You're probably better off for not because what they teach you in those textbooks isn't that valuable. Isn't that? Isn't that all right. thinking about what actually happens. Uh, so walk me through from your perspective. curves in different directions in a way that's like totally useless. I think I think it, what, what you find actually is that, uh, that market practitioners, people who have been doing this for a long time, they, in, in one form or another, what they see is a series of linkages in the economy that are sort of evolving through time, right? And everyone sort of has their own feel of exactly what they think is uh, more important or less important. But that basic idea of that there are a set of common sense linkages that you can sort of map out through time to think about how is the economy going to play out. I think is really important. And, and one of the things that um, that you can do, just you know, the everyday investor can do is go go to Fred, pull up the main economic data, things like unemployment, stocks, industrial production, say it's you know, housing market, things like that, and go look at how do these things, how do these different pieces fit together? What goes first, mm -hmm. what goes second, what goes third, and what are the, the leads and the lags that occur in those different things to sort of start to build that intuition of exactly how does how do these cycles play out? And so when I think about the cycle today, 
you know, where we're at is we're sort of we're at a a elevated level of uh, of economic activity, and the economy is growing you know pretty well, all things considered. You know, Q4 GDP now is above four percent. Now that's probably a little too strong, but hmm. it's probably measured a little too strong than what the reality is. But there's certainly no question the U.S. economy is is fine. Like unemployment is at secular lows. GDP now is at four percent. Like this is a this is a pretty strong economy operating at a pretty high level of output. And so basically what has to happen from there, and, and as a function of the strong economy and the and the high level of output is a strong labor market. And as a function of the strong labor market, a function of the strong labor market is strong wage growth. Right. And that strong wage growth is is critically necessary to support nominal spending, which is supporting prices. And when you're the Fed, the Fed today, right, you have a trade-off between employment and prices, basically. Mm. Employment is darn good, not something to worry about. Prices are way too high. I mean, they've come down a little bit from peak, but like by and large, big picture, prices are way too high. You know, 50% of components are still rising faster than 8% annualized rate uh, over the last three months. So way too high in terms of prices. Okay, so what do we have to do to get the prices down? Well, the first thing we have to do to get the prices down is we have to soften wages. In order to soften wages, we have to soften the labor market. In order to soften the labor market, we have to deteriorate uh, earnings so that companies no longer, you know, start to, to no longer hire people or start to lay people off. In order to deteriorate earnings, we have to ease spending. In order to ease spending, we have to create uh, an environment where people no longer want to spend through the the decline in either asset prices, wealth effect, houses and stocks, um, or through rising interest rates. And that then connects all the way back to the beginning, which is the rising interest rate. So we've had the rising interest rates for a few months, and we have to go through all of these steps to eventually get to what's necessary to start lowering prices, right? We can in the labor market lowering prices. And that's when you talk about how a typical macroeconomic cycle works, like that is the typical macroeconomic cycle is you have to go through all of those steps to get to the end goal, which the end goal in terms of lowering prices is the essentially the hardest, right? The, the, the prices are rising at the fastest rate that they have in 40 years and so or 50 years. And so the Fed has to do a lot on that end and actually just connecting to what we were talking about before a lot of what's happened over the course of the last couple, 15 years or so post-financial crisis is we've really reduced the economy sensitivity to interest rate rises, in part because of the 15 years of easy monetary policy and in part because of a whole bunch of structural dynamics, which uh, reduce the risk of a crisis type dynamic. And so we've created this situation. This, this is the situation we're in right now, which is we have the highest inflationary pressures we've had in a long time and the weakest ability for the Fed to control them through the levers that they use through interest rate rises. Uh, and so what we have is probably one, you know, one of the longest, one of the hardest cycles that the Fed is facing in terms of getting the economy to slow down in quite a bit at a time when they need the economy to slow down at more than they have in 50 years. Mm. Yeah, you know, the Fed is in a very difficult position, I think. And Almost the way that I mentally think about it is, have you ever tried to back up a, like a long, 
you know, mover truck or something like that. You know how difficult <laughs> it is to like reverse and it's super far and you're trying you to angle it the right way. That's, that's right. You can only go forward. You, go forward. And, you never try right. And the Fed is basically <laughs> trying to back into a tiny parking space with an 18 wheeler, you know, and they've got that's such right. little visibility and it's, it's just very difficult. What would you, you know, there's sort of these two schools of thought, right? Which is everyone agrees the Fed should have stopped easing before they did. And that's, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? If, if it's very difficult to time markets, basically what a lot of people I feel like are asking the Fed to do, I'm borrowing a phrase here, is be a good active manager of the money supply, which is just an extremely difficult thing to do, right? For if sure. you try to be an active money manager. So right now, there, there are sort of these two camps out there, which is the Fed needs to do what they have to do to clamp down on the money supply. They have to get uh, price stability in control. Price stability ultimately should supersede unemployment as a mandate. That's, you know, the the, the dual mandate of the Fed there. And then there's another camp that says, well, hold on. All right. I mean, the Fed are kind of looking at, you know, sort of to what you just described, these old models with different curves, and they have no idea what they're talking about. It's a bunch of academics with, with very little market acumen. They're not looking at the forward indicators. Don't they understand that they're crushing the economy? And it's not going to be the economy, of the you know, the Fed of the 1970s, Arthur Burns. It's going to be the Fed of the 1930s. So where do you sort of fall on that on that spectrum here? Do you think the Fed is doing a particularly good job in, in managing the cycle, or are they as bad as, as everyone sort of thinks? Well, <laughs> I think as a as a uh, a macro investor, investor in general, like it's important to put aside your views on what should be done, or whether the Fed's doing a good job or not in accomplishing what their goals are, or whether they will do a good job or not. In accomplishing their goals. I think the most important thing to recognize is what are the things that the Fed looks at and how do they respond? That's the only thing, those are the only two things that matter. And I think it actually matters a lot more than, for instance, whatever Brainerd is saying versus somebody else versus somebody else. Like that, that's all that's all noise relative to the thing that matters, which is the Fed looks at on a backward-looking basis, inflation and unemployment. And by and large, tunes monetary policy in response to those two indicators trying to meet their dual mandate. And so what I'd say, you know, today is that when you look at those two things, employment's okay. Is I mean employment's pretty good, secular mm. you know, unemployment's at secular lows. Yeah. And inflation is too high. And you put those two things together and you say they need to they will their their decision function the reaction function is to continue to implement tighter monetary policy until the point in which that that trade-off starts to change and then they'll adjust how they're behaving and and does that mean that they'll overshoot like almost certainly yes and the way i would describe it is like that sort of backward looking fed dynamic is uh, a feature and a bug in the sense of yeah. it's a bug that it's not forward looking and it's not great. It's not the ideal way in which you would manage monetary policy because ideally you would have some blend of your confidence in the future versus what you're seeing today versus what you're seeing in the past. And you sort of navigate those two things, but that's fine. That's, that's the bug. The feature is if you understand that's how the Fed manages, manages monetary policy, then you can trade based upon that understanding because there's a lot of people who are out there in the markets trading it based upon what they think think should be done, right? Or what they hope will be done or all that stuff. Forget all that. You gotta understand the Fed responds to those two core issues, monetary policy, 
uh, unemployment and inflation. To be clear, there's a little bit of financial stability, though that's not really a big issue right now. That's what they respond to. They do it on a backward looking basis and they behave in response to that. And so like, just know that, understand that and recognize that that's how they're gonna behave on a forward looking basis. And the, and the being late scenario, you know, mostly was a function of that. I mean, if anything, uh, I think probably the Fed learned even more through that cycle where they were trying to look a little bit ahead because they were trying to bet that the inflation was transitory rather than looking at the actual inflation. They got burned by that. Like, I think it's actually a really important thing to consider is on the margin, they were a bit too forward looking. They were forward looking wrong, <laughs> to be clear, but they were too forward looking in the way in which they were approaching the problem a year or two ago. And the lesson from that is not that they should be even more forward looking in the future and guessing what's likely to transpire. The lesson from that is stop being forward looking. You have no idea what's going on because they don't know what's going on in the future. They don't know what's going on. Respond to the data that's coming in, respond with your, your reaction function and operate that way. And that's, I think the big, you know, is, is Powell a Burns or a Volcker or all that stuff. Like, I don't think that's really the thing that is the big lesson from the Fed over the course of the last couple of years, I think the big lesson is they got burned by trying to guess, and they're probably not going to not going to do that. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, tra- I mean, transitory was definitely tough from a, from an optics standpoint for our Fed, and you, you can also go back and I think one of the things that gets skipped over is that Arthur Burns initially was viewed as a fighter of inflation. He hiked up interest rates right initially. Much higher than you know. He he had this perception in the yeah, I mean, he, he brought interest rates to the highest they had been, you know, since since a long time before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Ex- exactly. And and there's an enormous amount of political pressure, right? Because as interest rates rise, this macroeconomic cycle that you detailed before goes into effect. And when you're raising rates, it's not good for people. It's painful. People get let go from their jobs. Companies start to suffer. And it's like, hey, well, why are we why why are we doing all this stuff? And I think you know he tried to see through. He gave this he gave this speech that Powell was in the in the room for and he sort of described the mistakes that he made at the Fed and Powell you know would then go on to try to not replicate not replicate those mistakes but it's tough it's just it's just a hard hard and difficult thing um, as anyone who's ever tried to implement unpopular policy will probably know so I, I'd love to get your thoughts on a couple of different sectors right that might be impacted by this let's talk about bonds housing and let's talk about public equities before we move into privates Sure. Horrendous start to the year for bonds. Maybe we can start to talk about the 60-40 and the relationship between bonds and equities and why that might be throwing investors as well. I'd love to get your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, you know, 60-40 stocks and bonds, you know, big picture, that's the way that most investors are allocated in one form or another, 60-40, 70-30, etc. The first thing I'd emphasize is by and large, most investors basically only have equity. And the reason why that is, is because bonds have much lower volatility than equities do. And so even if the capital allocation is 70, 30 or 60, 40, you basically have a portfolio that's 90 plus percent correlated with equity markets over the course of, you know, a one, three, six month time frame. And so, you know, make sure everyone is holding equities going into this dynamic, into a inflationary cycle and a tightening cycles in response well, to that. One clarifying question on that, though, Bob, isn't risk parity a little bit different because there's margin that's being taken, right? There's leverage that's being taken on the bond side of the portfolio. 
Yeah, I mean, that's one of the thoughts about about risk parity uh, as, a, as a strategy, which is different from 60-40. 60-40 just basically takes assets, stocks and bonds, and takes them as they are. They happen to be packaged in the, in, you know, in the way that stocks are more volatile than bonds, to be clear, also expected to have higher returns over time in their given packages. One of the ways in which you can adjust those things is by changing the uh, the amount of either leverage that you have in the bond market, or you can go for longer duration in order to to more accurately match the uh, amount of stock risk that you have. Mm-hmm. But but by and large, people don't do that. By and large, they just hold sixty forty or some derivative or or something that's close to sixty forty in terms of of what they're holding, and so they're basically have a lot of stock risk in place. Now, the trouble is in this site. You know, in addition, I should say. They're also in the 60-40, not only do you have relatively concentrated stock risk, but the other thing you have is a couple of assets that typically do well when inflation is low and falling, and a couple of assets that don't do that well when inflation starts to rise. And that's basically what we saw this, this period, which is the biggest upside inflation outcome, upside relative to expectations, inflation outcome, than we've seen in 30 or 40 years. And so it's not surprising that the 60-40 portfolio hasn't done very well, because basically the 60-40 portfolio is a bet on low and falling inflation. Um, and that's, you know, at, at its core, that's basically what happened this year um, that caused most investors to be, you know, and most investors are quite poorly positioned for uh, inflationary dynamics to, to play out. Mm. So, uh, you know, in, in the, the difference there being when you look at bonds, the way the bonds get priced, there's uh, credit risk, right? And default on, on those bonds. And then there's actually inflation, right? Which is your, your return, your real return getting eaten away by nominal inflation going above whatever, or inflation going above the nominal rate that you're getting paid. So is that kind of responsible for the decline in bonds? And then can you explain a little bit more about why that inverse correlation in between stocks and bonds reverses in an inflationary environment. Yeah, if you think about bonds, there's basically uh, there's basically um, three pieces, uh, mm. but but I'll, I'll mostly talk about government bonds because I think mm. that, that's probably by and large the core risk that people have when they're holding um, when they're holding bonds because they're typically holding uh, a broad portfolio of bonds which are very very tilted towards government bonds and then very low credit spread uh, bonds if they're holding a, a portfolio of investment grade quality or better. Um, and so really what drives bonds, two things, which is you can break down the bond yield into two pieces, which is the inflation expectations and the real interest rate, right? And in this period, uh, this inflationary period, bond basically bonds get hit two, two ways, <laughs> mm. about as bad as it comes, right? Which is First, inflation expectations expand. That that was part of the story here. It was not the biggest part of the story, but it was certainly part of the story. The second is typically in inflationary uh, dynamics, you start to see real interest rates rise, the expectation of real interest rates rise. And the reason why that is, is people start to price in the central bank basically increasing their tightening they're tightening a monetary policy, and in particular, they're real tightening of monetary policy, not just a nominal tightening of monetary policy. And that basically affected the whole bond curve, creating an expansion in the real yield, which caused bond yields to, to sell off significantly. 
Mm. Now that is basically rising inflation is a perfect storm that is bad for bonds. There's no question about that. And it's why when you put it together in aggregate you know, on a on a price or a total return basis, bonds in 2022 had their worst year since uh, <laughs> since the American it's Revolution. crazy. Yeah, the American right? Revolution. Yeah. And so, you know, and that's, you know, that we would call that an unusual outcome. You know, that that wouldn't be, um, you yeah. know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily even prepare for that kind of risk in the way that you wouldn't, you know, you might consider building a house in a 500 year floodplain and not, you know, not worry too much about it. That's sort of the same dynamic that we saw with bonds, um, a perfect storm with them. I think equities uh, in many ways, uh, they're a little bit different than bonds uh, in terms of the overall structure in a way that's a bit less sensitive to rises in inflation. And so that's why, you know, equities have had a bad year, but not a particularly terrible year in any longer term context. I mean, stocks go down 15 or 20 percent all the time. Um, and, and the reason why that is, is uh, when you think about stocks, you know, the all stocks are are an uncertain bond. Mm. Think about it that way in the sense of you're getting an earnings, which is like your coupon. And it, that those earnings are being discounted by uh, the prevailing discount rate. And so when you have an inflationary dynamic, what you see is you see the prevailing discount rate rise, real rates rise in particular, uh, which causes future cash flows to be discounted more heavily uh, and, and as a result cause a depression in price. That's why what you saw was a particularly a particular sensitivity for very long duration stocks, stocks where the earnings were way out into the future. They had previously been discounted at essentially zero mm-hmm. uh, because interest rates were you know, not they were pretty close to zero across the curve. But when you had interest rates rise, those cash flows were so far out into the future that the, the impact of rising interest rates caused those long dated earnings to start to get discounted really materially which caused a significant fall in their prices. So that's why you see tech stocks and, and I mean, even worse than tech stocks, I guess we'll talk about it, but like venture, venture funded firms that are not profitable, really seeing a, a, a bad price effect or shouldn't see a bad price effect in terms of what the, the valuation is. And then on, on, on equities, the, offs, the thing that offsets that, of course, is that you're getting earnings, right? And earnings is both a nominal, con- earnings are a nominal concept in the sense of, you know, if inflation starts to rise, then, you know, what we've seen, for instance, in second and third quarter earnings is companies' earnings, nominal earnings start to rise to some extent, which helps offset the inflationary pressure because, you know, companies sell nominal goods and when nominal goods prices go up, they get more nominal income and that supports their nominal earnings. And so you have a little bit of an interplay between those two things, which makes stocks less affected by an inflationary cycle than bonds are. And so that's why what we've seen over the course of 2022 is basically a not good year, but not a terrible year for stocks and a a horrendous year for bonds because of the way in which those assets uh, are affected by inflationary dynamics. Mm. So you started to get into it, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the private part of the market, because if you talk talk about assets that are getting valued based on future cash flows, you know, early stage startups, they have some of the longest duration out there, right? Because you're largely basing an enormous part of the valuation on theoretical cash flows that are going to happen. And they haven't been de-risked quite as much, right? There was a, you know, over the last couple of years, right, there have been a big, there's been a big movement, especially on the institutional side of things into 
private assets. So could you just give a, a description of what's the scope of that movement? What drove that? And then what's sort of the status of, of private markets today? Well, I think uh, many institutional investors have uh, see private assets as a way to not have to put up with the sort of volatility that they saw, uh, that they see and experience in uh, in the public markets. And you know, I think private investment and private equity and venture capital has been around for a long time. I think in particular started to boom following the financial crisis for a couple of different reasons. One, the financial crisis was not a pleasant experience for people holding public market securities and seeing, you know, stock stocks fall by two thirds, right? That was a pretty unpleasant uh, outcome for them. And so they, they many times were looking for things where that was not the shape of the outcome, where they didn't have to face that reality as explicitly and as acutely as they did through the financial crisis. That's point number one. Point number two is we also entered an environment of unprecedented monetary stimulation and very low interest rates. And what that did is it created a lot of liquidity that could uh, it both create a lot of liquidity. So there was a lot of ability to borrow uh, and borrow meaning like issue stock, issue bonds, borrow in all sorts of different ways to fund uh, companies that were not positive cash flow earning in order to basically fill that gap. And then on top of it, what it did is it lowered interest rates, which created a circumstance where your, your cost of capital or your needed return on capital was very low relative to the amount of liquidity that was out in the system. And what you could do is you could basically take a lot of that liquidity, channel it into something that had very long dated cash flows that could you know, live through the J curve much longer because there's a lot of liquidity to help finance the J curve, buy a lot of lottery tickets, and be able to launder the volatility where you didn't actually have to recognize, you know, the zeros that you necessarily put up on the board. And so it was so vent, I mean, I'm talking mostly about venture capital here was like the perfect combination of uh, the perfect asset, given the preferences of institutional investors and the macroeconomic dynamic, it was the perfect asset for everyone to go invest in. And so it wasn't surprising that you saw this massive flow of capital into these private markets, particularly venture capital, but also private equity, that basically was taking advantage of this macro environment, um, plus the, the benefits of, of, of volatility laundering. Uh, for those of us who might not have as much experience, can you just explain how private assets get marked? Like, what's the frequency that that happens? And what are the methodologies that are used? Yeah, well, I, I think um, the short answer is that they get marked whenever the general partner wants to mark them uh, and at whatever valuation the general partner wants to value them at. And I, and I say that um, in a way that could come across as being like tongue in cheek and kind of, you know, snarky, but, but that is the reality, which is that anytime you see those valuations, they're not a function of price dis market price discovery. They're a function of what the GPs are telling them. I think it's really important to recognize because what it allows you to allows people to do is to not mark things in the way that public markets like what's the price of a stock traded on the New York Stock Exchange? It's whatever the heck 
the prices on the New York Stock Exchange, right? There's no getting around it. There's no, you could say, well, I think it's worth more. I think it's worth less, but there's no ambiguity about the value of the thing. Whereas in the, in the private markets, there's ultimate ambiguity about what the actual value of the thing is. And there's a lot of discretion that the GPs may have in order to figure out exactly how they want to mark that, what comparables they want to compare to. It's, you know, what, you know, they could, they could be taking capital in, as an example, at a certain price and think that it's worth more than what that capital is worth in terms of the marking, right? Because that was, you know, it was distressed or it was a, you know, it was a bad mark or all these different things. And so accounting, like it's a very important thing to recognize is accounting for private market assets is completely at the, you know, is by and large at the discretion of the, of the GPs and, and, and not, you know, independently triangulated the way public markets uh, assets are, are, are triangulated every day. Can't get around it. <laughs> and I think, and I think it's important to recognize that that is a real feature because if what you are is an institutional investor or run a family office or, or, or a RIA, and what you don't want to have is people calling you up and complaining, you know, calling you up either like your constituents, if you run a public fund or, or the family or your clients, you, you really don't want them to call you up and start complaining about why did you invest in this thing that went up or, you know, it's fine if it goes up, but this thing that went down, right? And part of the benefit of the private market world is that you can smooth through those things and not really recognize when there is a, a problem. So as an example today, like, Loss producing or loss producing tech companies in the public markets are down 80%. The Cambridge Associates uh, venture capital index is down 10%. Okay, like one of those two things, you know, what, what's the reality? Well, you know, if I had to, if I had to bet, I'd say probably a lot closer to down 80% than down 10%. And even when you go talk to people who are actually operators in these businesses, what they'll tell you is that it's down 80%, not down 10%. But that's not what investors are getting. They see this very nice, smooth thing where, you know, where they don't have to worry about it. And I think we're in a unique position with those assets where we're right at the, at let's call it peak hope. Like what's, what's happening right now is typically what you try to do is smooth through a cycle, right? And hope mm. that you're going to get a positive outcome on the back end, right? Either the companies themselves will recover or asset valuations will recover. And you and you hope over the course of three or four years that eventually what happens is you bring your valuations down a little bit and the reality starts to converge back and then you get back onto this long-term positive cycle. Well, in an environment, the, the, the problem is, the problem is we're not in a cyclical environment for those assets right now where we just happen to have a bit of weakness you know, versus a previous period of a bit of strength. We're in a totally different monetary policy environment. Like we went from the easiest monetary conditions that have existed in the history of the modern world, right? That, that's when all of those assets and those investments happened was in that environment to, an, to a time when the era of cheap money, it's over. <laughs> and yeah. so assets like, like loss producing, long dated earnings assets are never going to get priced like they were in a period of long-term zero interest rates and massive QE. They're going to have to be fundamentally repriced and it's going to take some time, but we're going to get there. Um, and if you looked at, say, the cycles in 
in the 2000 cycle, like venture capital went down 75% in the 2000 cycle. Um, you know, public market comps right now are pricing in 80% declines or have already declined 80%. Like the idea mm -hmm. that you're going to see your venture book go down 75 or 80% is totally reasonable, totally plausible. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question to you is, how does that ever end up happening, right? Because it seems like the the mechanism for price discovery is so different in public markets than it is in private, because in public markets, you have to find willing buyers and sellers, and then eventually it'll clear at some price. But the assets don't change as many hands in private markets, right? Some of the very large privates, right? There's a more liquid market for secondaries and all that kind of stuff. But by and large, they're held by the same group of people who are incentivized because they might be trying to raise a new fund or whatever it is to see that mark stay high. And then one layer above them at the institutional layer, they say, well, the whole reason we got into this asset class is because is because we we don't want this volatility, right? So right. everyone kind of has their own unique set of incentives to kind of look the other way. So I guess what reality sort of tells me is, look, have you seen that 80% decrease in your public market comps? How can you expect, you know, it, at some point you have to exit, right? So it makes no sense for you to be marked the way it is. On the other hand, there are all these incentives for them not to be necessarily marked properly. How do How do we square that circle, so to speak? Like, how, what, well, how do you see this resolving itself? I mean, eventually what's going to happen is that, um, is that there's either going to be exits and that'll be priced however it's priced. But, you know, mm -hmm. if you invested in something in in 2020 or something like that, like, you know, your exit could be 12 years later, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. I think the other way, typically, and, and this is what you saw in the, in the 2000 cycle, is when the businesses are no longer an ongoing concern that then they do get marked to zero because you can't, you know, <laughs> like, like that's it, it's over. And I think the thing that we're starting to see with a number of, uh, of these, of these companies is that um, they had a lot of capital built up during the good times. They were running big deficits. You started to see a circumstance where, um, where, things were started to, to tighten up, but a recognition that there was no longer going to be easy capital in the future. When that happened, many of them, you know, cut jobs to some extent, tightened up their, their outlays and are basically in a circumstance where they're running much smaller, you know, financing needs than they had before. That sort of delayed the inevitable, which is at some point they're going to have to start raising capital again, or, they're going to go bankrupt. And so, you know, that's the sort of thing we're going to, I mean, we've already started to see it to some extent with these businesses. And over time, we are likely to see it uh, more and more over time, which is that, you know, they no longer become, you know, they're no longer ongoing concerns. They fold. Um, yeah. And the idea that, you know, 80% of these businesses that were loss producing businesses that were venture backed are going to fold over the course of the next, you know, two, three, four years. So that seems actually quite plausible quite reasonable. And that's kind of how we might get to that down 80% valuation, which is already being priced into the public markets. What's going on, guys? Want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Curve. They are the one-stop shop credit cards that helps you take control of your personal finances. Here's the reason that I personally love this company. These guys are all about helping you manage and maximize your personal cash flow. We have been talking for the last couple of months about everything that the Fed is doing with raising interest rates. Obviously, this is not, no one's got a crystal ball. This is not financial advice, but I think it makes sense more than ever now for companies to be managing their cash flow and for you as an individual to be managing your personal cash flow as well. Curve makes it super, super easy to do that. 
even I can do it. As a technological Philistine, they aggregate all of your spending information in one place. They make it super easy to plan. But they actually go one step further than that. They have a very cool feature called Go Back in Time, which allows you to switch payments from one card to another. So if you have an unexpected expense crop up, boom, you can move that over to your credit card, free up some cash. Or maybe you learned too late that you could have earned more rewards by spending on a different card. Boom, Curve has you covered there too. And the last thing that I'll say is, if you click the link at the bottom of this episode, you'll get $20 in Curve cash, but you'll only get that if you click the vanity link at the bottom of this episode. Plus, that gives me the credit as well. So thank you, Curve. I appreciate you caring about cash flow. Guys, click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell my center. Can can you from from your perspective, you know, I don't want to make you comment on anything if you have relationships or whatever, but you know, I was kind of watching, you know, SoftBank and Tiger, maybe as the the two sort of poster children for coming in, especially to very late stage privates and just writing these unbelievable checks. You know, especially Tiger was very active in the crypto space and they were known. I heard multiple stories of a round was entirely priced and there was an entire the lead investor, whole cap table, and they came in and said, We want to take the whole round, we'll double the valuation. And rounds were getting close like that. And at the time, I was just thinking to myself, I mean, these are some of the smartest guys in the room, investing-wise. Like, what am I missing? And, you know, fast forward one year and is, you know, record losses and, and all that kind of stuff. From where you're sitting, what, what did that, you know, what, what did that sort of look like to you, that enormous amount of investment that was pouring into especially late-stage privates? Well, I think they were very, uh, I mean, I think, look, I, I think that at, at, a, at a, uh, a big picture level, Yes, they were very smart. And the, mm-hmm. and the way in which they were very smart is they recognized that the thing that was going to earn them capital over time, earn them, like earn them fees over time, was not carefully and prudently managing the portfolio to carefully, you know, allocate sums and hold back during, uh, during the boom environment. Like, what they recognized is if they could move $20 billion into the venture capital markets, then they could call up their friends again and move another $20 billion into the venture capital markets, right? And into investing. Like that's what they recognized is that all the incentives were aligned for them to behave irresponsibly, right? Like I think that's so important to recognize. The incentives Mm -hmm. were aligned for them to behave irresponsibly. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm telling you, I, I sat on the private side of the two and 20 business during the boom period. Mm-hmm. And it was challenging to have conversations with people to say, no, actually what we think is that, you know, valuations today are actually are actually too high relative to longer term trends, that we should be very prudent with our capital right now. We should hold back. We should look for future times. Like, to be honest with you, like that kind of conversation was thought of as like crazy, right? <laughs> And in in that environment, in the boom time environment, everyone was so focused on, you know, on the, on the allocator side, they were so focused on getting the next deal and the next deal and the next deal and being in the next fund and the next fund and the next fund. And then of course the investors are smart enough to recognize that capital prudence isn't the thing that's going to make them wealthy. It's getting more money out the door. And you had basically a perfect combination that was like pretty bad over the long term. For the for the original investors, given the various incentives that were that were in place, yeah. So you know, maybe just to round out uh, and close out this discussion here, and then I, w- I want to get your thoughts on you know moving forward uh, where where we're going. 
But is there any sort of, you know, people use this word a lot in markets. Is there a reckoning, a reckoning coming, right? It's been a, it's been a tough year for public market investors. It's been a tough year for, for investors in bonds. Eventually, right, maybe 80% of the companies that are in private today's hotshot companies never find a way to significant, you know, consistently generate profits and they might fail. But what does that ultimately look like for the pensions, the endowments, the private equity, the VC funds that invested here? Are they going to see the same sorts of results? Like, are they eventually going to have, have to recognize big losses? Or what does the um, the reckoning sort of look like on, on the institutional investor well, side? Well, it's going to, from the institutional perspective, it's going to be a very, a glacial reckoning. <laughs> a glacial reckoning. Yeah, I like mm. that. Um, you know, it, it's going to take time. It's going to take years for, um, for these uh, for these losses to flow through, for them to be recognized by the GPs, for those to go into the funds, for the funds not to deliver the capital, like that's part of the benefit from the perspective of an allocator. Like strategically, it has often been a benefit, which is like you know part of the challenge of investing in public markets is like if you're wrong, like you know it every day. You know, and even the best investors are right on their position 60% of months and, you know, great funds can lose, you know, something like a third of the time will lose money over the course of uh, a three-year period, like even a one-sharp ratio fund will. You know, those are all circumstances that cause a lot of scrutiny um, for public markets investing, whereas private markets investing, say I, you know, invested in some capital in a fund in 2020, let's say, there may not be a recognition yeah. of the poor value of that investment till 15 years later. You know, 15 years later, like who knows where, you know, the, the original allocator can be, you know, long gone. Long gone. Long gone. Yeah. No and wonder, so, man. And so, I mean, I think it's, it's, but there will be a glacial reckoning. And over time, I think people will start to, to ask and demand for more accurate assessments of the valuation. I think they'll ask and demand for, you know, capital not to be locked up the way that it is. Like all of these things are basically like they're, they're hiding what is embedded meaningful losses. And so in the same way you saw, I think public private market investing become, you know, a really attractive uh, fad uh, over the course of the last 20 years or so. You know, probably twenty by twenty years from now, will uh, either either you know probably in part the private markets will look a lot more like the public markets in the sense of the valuations will be more obvious mm. to people more in real time, and I think people will more increasingly recognize the value of the public markets. Like public markets are are beautiful are are beautiful. <laughs> Go back to the to the original, uh, to our, what we started with in terms of the economic organization of the POW camp, like there's a reason why people move typically towards public markets with public marks in, you know, in a, that is widely just the, the price of which is widely distributed. It's because there's real value for all involved to right. see and evaluate that sort of dynamic, not to mention the fact, to be perfectly frank with you, that the regulatory considerations in public markets, the regulatory infrastructure that exists in the U.S. when it comes to public markets is radically better than what it is in the private markets. Like there, you know, if if it's hard for me to believe 
that you could have the sort of problems that you've seen in the crypto space if those were you know fully publicly traded securities that were oh, yeah. that required audits from a big you know big four auditing firm that had to file SEC you know uh, K's and Q's that were looked at and examined in the level of rigorousness that the public market equity investors you know examine things like that's one of the benefits like you you public market exchanges, public market securities, public market regula regulation. Like if anything, that's what we're seeing is a win, a win for the investor from public markets relative to private markets. Yeah. I, you know, this, it's, it's a really funny reversal of narrative because, you know, a couple of years ago you heard, you heard people say, well, wh why would you ever want to be a public market investor? There's all this burden, it's regulatory burden. And now there's just as much capital in the private markets as there is public. Why would you ever do it? And the answer might be because people are sick of getting scammed in the right. private markets, you know? Right. right. I think that's a, and I think people, uh, if you go back through time, like what I like to say is people love unregulated financial innovation until they want their money back. Like that's, that's the way it works, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. People loved wildcat banks in the, in the 19th century until they wanted their money back. And the wildcat banks were like, no, sorry, we don't have your money. I don't have that anymore. Right. Yeah. And, and like, that's the, that's the thing that, you know, I, I don't, I don't know much about crypto in the terms of the, the nitty gritty. I don't trade Bitcoin or any of the particular assets. But what I do know is that um, you had a situation that was obviously radically uh, under underregulated, uh, and not underregulated because I have some wish that everyone be regulated by the government, but underregulated from the perspective of there were not the sort of basic consumer protections that exist when you invest in banks or you invest in public market securities or with a investment. Uh, investment broker, like there weren't, there's reasons for the public good and for the good of the small scale investor. This is not about the system. This is the good of the small scale investor. There are reasons why those regulatory constraints exist and why that regulation is in place. And it's to protect the small scale investor. And frankly, everybody failed. The SEC failed in, 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 in essentially forcing themselves to regulate the thing. Uh, and, you know, the crypto community failed because they were too fearful in one form or another uh, and, and pushed back too hard against, frankly, what is baseline regulatory requirement across the vast majority of the financial system. Yeah, I have I have moderately I, I agree with a lot of that. I think what the where I would agree with you the most is I think the failure that crypto as a community has had. It's been, it's been a little disheartening, even in the course of the last couple of months. I mean, there are a couple of there are a couple of guys who were committed, a, you know, maybe not convicted in a court of law because they all moved to countries that have no extradition rights, but basically did fraud. And they're coming back and they're tweeting again. And I'm kind of just like, it's disheartening to be a part of this community and look at that and not say, "Hey, guys, we gotta." self-police here a little bit better. What are we, what are we doing? Um, I, I, do, I have one question for you actually about, sorry, I know I keep saying we're done with private markets, but I want to return really briefly to this. You know, because a lot of the, you know, the governance failure that I think you correctly identified in crypto, I mean, on a smaller scale was happening in these private markets. I mean, FTX is a private markets company. You know, I'd love to get your thoughts on, 
let's, let's talk about FTX specifically because people are pointing the finger right now at these sophisticated investors that were supposed to be doing due diligence. You know, mm-hmm. Tiger again with sorry, I, I, yeah, fan of the fund and everything, but you really know, you were involved in this. sorry, guy, yeah, sorry, guys. Um, uh, but you know, also, I mean, Sequoia is is another one. They also wrote that glowing review of Sam Bankman Fried, which they've since deleted this post, but Ontario's teachers' pension, Temasek. I mean, I, I don't mean to single anyone out. These are just these were supposed to be the most blue chip of the blue chip, and there were some really basic failures in diligence that there was no CFO, there was no board, kind of being the the two biggest things. So, you know, where where do you sort of fall? Is it is this always going to kind of happen in private markets? Was there a real failure in diligence here? I mean, well, what, I think, what do you think about I that? think there's there's two things. The first thing I say is I, I don't know anything about FTX with any level of specificity other than right. you know, when I read the papers and and you know in, in the public domain. So I don't, I don't want to comment like anything specifically about yeah. FTX because it's not, it's not really my, my domain or, or specialty. What I would say is the thing that I have seen across uh, the institutional investment environment uh, is that uh, there is a lot of expertise in areas like technology or healthcare or my previous work in consumer in consumer. Um, as a combination of, you know, as investors and operators of those sorts of companies, and that um, that expertise is not the same as expertise in a financial institution. That's a very different, it's a very different huh. type of entity. And that if you look at the typical investors, the, 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 whether it's the allocators at the big institutional, you know, funds, um, or, or the venture capital allocators, very few have significant experience running or, or operating or investing in financial firms. And financial firms are very different uh, in terms of the types of, uh, the types of due diligence you would need to run, the types of, of questions you would need to ask. Like they aren't matters solely of technology, uh, right? There's lots of other considerations that are in place. And so I think that that's one of the things that you're seeing is you saw, you know, in the in a bit of a gold rush of a lot of folks wanting to capture, you know, the 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 shiny thing, the what looked mm-hmm. to be innovative, framing it in their minds as a technology investment and not recognizing that actually what they were doing was by and large a financial investment. And if you're by and large running a financial investment, there's a set of criteria, a set of expertise and things that you would need to ask and to investigate. And that I think because of uh, lack of experience uh, and, a, and a misframing of the dynamic, I think you know, investors, venture investors missed some of the key considerations uh, of those institutions. Mm. I have a little pet theory about, about why what might have happened here. I haven't really voiced, but I... I could be totally wrong about this, but it's something I've noticed, you know, in the same way that when crypto people try to talk about macro, they're often missing the mark a decent amount. And if I was, you know, if I had my hat on and I was sitting deeply in the macro community, like these guys don't really, but I also think it works the other way. And I think sometimes when, you know, people who come from a very long, very background in finance, work for a whole bunch of sophisticated banks and hedge funds or whatever, they can sometimes be off the mark a little bit in when they move into crypto. And sometimes I, what I've noticed is there are, 
people who are obviously really, really smart, come from great pedigrees and all that kind of stuff, but they're kind of like, okay, I'm going to move into this space and I'm just going to, I'm going to accept that I don't know a whole lot here and I'm going to be open to everything. But Mm -hmm. you want to be open to stuff, but not so open that your brain falls out. And you you just want to not totally miss that when someone seems sketchy, they're probably sketchy in in real life or not, you know? Uh, That is is certainly true. And I think part of the dynamic is, as an example, you know, FTX and the like, their exchanges. There are other exchanges that exist out there in the world. You know, financial market exchanges have existed for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, And there's a set of uh, dynamics, a set of criteria, various ways in which you know that an exchange is strong versus ways that you know that an exchange might have risks. And I, I think part of the conceptualization that was missed was not seeing that that's the form of thing that you had, which was you had an exchange, exchanges have certain forms, and not coming over here and saying, oh, yes, I, it's not a technology play, it's a financial market exchange. And so things like, um, you know, are, you know, can you very clearly tie a person's account to an asset that exists in that account? in a first class way, you know, those are the sorts of things that if you're a, a, a broker or an exchange or things like that, you can't like that, that's, that's fundamental stuff that you have to have in place. Those are fundamental questions that you start to get, you know, that they get asked when you're thinking about that. And then I think that that's, uh, you know, that was, that was the gap. And, and it could be, it could be for the reasons that you're saying, which is people say, hey, this is something new. I don't really know too much about it. Um, but, you know, at some level, what was being done at these various places is not that new. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's actually, <laughs> if you go back and read that piece, it's actually not that different from what, um, you know, years and years, you know, decades ago in the POW camp, what was happening when there became eventually there was a market and then from a market actually became a store where people could essentially store their stuff in the store. Uh, you know, it's the same exact thing. Um, you go back and you can read in the POW camp how that unraveled, which was when, you know, there weren't enough assets at the store relative to all the claims that were out there uh, that people had on the assets in the store, on the goods in the store, right? It's like the same exact thing. Um, unbelievable. That, uh, you know, that... How do you essentially <laughs> clear cigarettes? What does that What's look that? like? How do you essentially clear cigarettes? Is that like there's a warden or something? How does the central clearing happen on the cigarette front? I'm very curious. Well, they actually created their own money. Uh, mm. Well, first of all, the way the central clearing worked was prices were quoted in cigarettes and people basically just did the exchange at the market based Got upon it. the quoted cigarette price when there was market. Then what you had was a store that was created um, and they actually issued paper money. Uh which was, uh, which was uh, arbitrageable to goods in the store, uh, which over time uh, was taken advantage of uh, and created a collapse in the, in the paper money. That's unbelievable. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm telling you, everything you need to know, you just go to the 13 pages and it's like- I, we'll, every, we'll have to link uh, it in the show notes here. <laughs> All right, uh, Bob, I know this is, this is the toughest part uh, because I know no one has this, but I, I still want to ask you to dust off your crystal ball a little bit. Oh, and, you know, if, nice. I, if I could kind of summarize where we are, right? I mean, so the Fed 
kind of keeps hiking rates, but they the the hikes have slowed, right? So we got fifty basis points instead of seventy five last last uh, last FOMC. Equities have basically tread water for the, the past couple of months. Bonds are smoothing out. The housing market, you know, based on what yours, I actually heard you describe it as a frozen market, which I, I quite liked uh, the the way you described that. But it almost sort of seems like we're in limbo right now. So is your <laughs> prognosis that you know we continue to see? Uh, sort of hawkish surprises from the Fed, and that takes assets broadly lower. Do we keep treading water? I mean, where do you think we go from here? Well, I think the the most important thing to recognize is that um, it, is that macroeconomic cycles are really slow, and like most of us who have uh, have sort of cut our teeth in the investing world, either you know many the vast you know. The, a big chunk of folks only really know the 2020 recession, which wasn't even really a recession. It's like kind of a, a, an extraordinary, unusual circumstance, or they know that experience plus the 08 dynamic, which, uh, you know, a banking crisis is a, is a sort of once in a hundred year type uh, experience. And so you sort of only know these sort of V-shaped uh, dynamics, you know, where you have a crisis and then the Fed stimulates and you rebound. And what we're entering here is that we're, we're like in the third inning of a typical macroeconomic cycle, and that stuff takes a long time. And if anything, uh, I, I, was, I was going back and forth today on Twitter, sort of looking back and saying it felt like we were in the third inning a few months ago. It still feels like we're in the third inning. And I think that that speaks to this overall cycle which is it could very well be a lot even slower than what a typical macroeconomic cycle is. And that's because, uh, well, a lot of people point to the fact that the Fed has tightened a lot more than or like a lot faster than it has over the last 30 years. At the same time, the economy is a lot more resilient, uh, a lot less sensitive to short end tightening. There was massive easing uh, that has, you know, that basically is still having an effect, easy monetary policy, still having an effect on the economy today. In terms of you know the, the financial structure of firms and that savings built up for households and things like that, and so we have sort of this like very slow moving macroeconomic cycle that I think is just going to take a long time to play out, and that is going to require incredible patience, and it's going to be very hard for many investors because what we're going to see is we're going to see chop like chop like. What we've seen over the course of the last six months is these, this sort of choppy environment, not a clear trend environment. That choppy environment is very difficult for, for folks to trade. And there's a lot of like desire and anticipation that we're going to have the crisis and the bottom and, the, and then it's going to be the buying opportunity. You know, we're going to sell now and then we're going to buy and it's going to be, you know, we're going to get that great V-shaped outcome. And instead, the way I like to describe it is we're, we're kind of, in a slog. Uh, and that is, you know, there's there's sort of nothing more challenging as an investor than being in a slog because it requires unbelievable discipline to sit there and say, every day, let me carefully consider the range of plausible outcomes, how assets might transpire given those range of plausible outcomes. It's not clear we're going in this direction or in that direction. Let me be diversified to those various outcomes. And let me try and like preserve capital through this sloggy environment over the course of the next couple of years. You know, I know that that doesn't probably generate a lot of uh, 
clicks or sell a lot of papers, so to speak, that we're going to be in a slow moving slog for years. Um, but uh, well, you mean people don't want to hear that? <laughs> <laughs> they're not excited to receive that message. I think you know, they're both not excited to receive the message in terms of what it actually means. But I think they're also like, it's like boring. Like what? Yeah. What if what happens is over the next two years, it's pretty boring. Like we kind of have a mediocre economy that kind of is moderating a little bit and it's just kind of boringly grinding worse. And I think for, for many people, like if you go back to the 2000 cycle, you know, there's the, the pop or the, the popping of the, the tech bubble, which people have like very, very crisply in their minds who traded that period. But what they often forget is the two years after the sort of bubble pop period where things just kind of ground down, ground down until, you know, March of 2003, which it wasn't literally the bottom, but was darn close to the bottom. When, mm-hmm. you know, March 2000 is when the bubble popped. March 2003 is when it stopped. When when basically the, the, the long, you know, the decline, the cyclical decline in the equity market stopped. And then you started to get a recovery. I mean, think about how long that's going to take. Imagine two years from now, we're just having, we're having the same conversation, you know? Mm. <laughs> I know. Yeah, people don't like, but I, I agree. And, you know, you've heard that that analogy to the, you know, post-2001, the dot-com bubble bus being used a number of times. I tend to agree with you. I guess the one the one thing that might, you know, could change things is depending if there's some violent sell-off in the treasury market or something like that that causes the Fed to step in sooner than they would than they would like to ultimately. But they've kind of talked about that. And the Fed always, they always will say something like this, but they say they have this suite of tools. And I I get called I get called naive uh, or a, or a uh, deep state plant when I say things like this, but I kind of believe them. I kind of believe that they can do that. So, um, so yeah, that's. I think it. Might, I think I'm in agreement with you there, Bob. Um, now you, you've talked a little bit about uh, you know the work that you're doing at Unlimited, but just again for the viewers, if they want to like find out more information about you or follow you or access your products, like what's the best way to... Yeah, yeah, for sure. So probably, you know, if you're interested in in uh, in the macro economy and, and things like that, I'm uh, regularly, very active on Twitter, Bob E. Unlimited uh, is where you can find me uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, if you want to learn more about uh, Unlimited, uh, the business, as well as the HFND ETF, uh, you can check out uh, unlimitedfunds.com. Where uh, there'll be there's a link to the ETF page as well as uh, a whole set of information uh, on our blog, which is more geared towards how to think more strategically about asset management. But for uh, I suspect for a subset of of your listeners, that'll be particularly uh, pertinent as well. So you know, check it check check it out on all those different um, areas, and and uh, and also check out HFND and see if it's uh, if it's appropriate for you, uh, which is available now uh, on all the main trading platforms that are out there. Awesome. Bob, thank you very much, my friend. You've been very generous with your time. It was a really fun conversation. We'll have to do it again sometime soon. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me on. I uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. Cheers, my friend. See you later.